For those of you who perhaps have not been here, we are walking our way verse by verse, thought by thought, word by word, through this marvelous text, just recognizing this is an incredible grace of God given to us to be able to walk through his word like this, incredible revelation of Jesus Christ and glories for us to behold. And our text today, as has been the case for the last couple of Sundays, invites us to do what we have declared we want to do as a church, and that is to proclaim Christ uh, with the goal of maturing every one of us more and more and more into his likeness. All of our thoughts about Christ, as lofty as they may be, are still far too low. All of our perceptions of him and how full of glory he is is actually way below what it actually is. We barely grasp his greatness and importance. Even those of us who have studied it, who have known him a long time, who have experienced it in very powerful ways. And a reminder that if there is anything Satan wants us to be blind to, deceived about, misinformed, misperceiving, any way in which we get it wrong, it's the truth about Christ Jesus. A.W. Tozer reminds us that nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low or unworthy conception of God. So let me again, as I've exhorted us each of these Sundays, including my own heart, let's let these words of Christ and these words about Christ dwell in us richly and drive us evermore toward him. So Jonathan began us on this section of verses 15 to 20 last week, and we're noting that one of the primary purposes of Colossians for it being written seems to lie primarily in chapter 2, wrestling with the question, not so much how are we saved, but how are we sanctified? What's the end goal or the purposes for which we have been saved, and how do we become that? In essence, is there a single right way, or are there a variety of ways that we can spiritually be matured into the likeness of Christ? And do we just each have to figure out which way works best for us? Well, before taking on in chapter 2 what's wrong with some of the other ways, uh, particularly verses 8 to 23 of chapter 2, Paul is first going to lay out this superhighway of the single path that we all must walk on to attain true spiritual maturity. And if you look at the very end of chapter 2 quickly, verse 23 ends with the thought that we don't just want the appearance of wisdom or maturity. We want the real thing. And the real thing is, lies here in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. As Paul details some of the spectacular, singular, powerful, supreme truths of Christ. Even declaring that, as we noted last week, at the end of verse 18, so that he would be preeminent. So, there's a possibility that all of these verses or some of these verses are part of a hymn 
that was sung in the early church. Or we might think of it as a poem. Or maybe more helpful for us, a creed. This could have been something that was recited in homes and in in gatherings of believers. Something like the Apostles' Creed would be for us. Like, here are some defining truths about the beloved son that's first referred to back in verse 14 and the truths about him. So, incredible start that we had. And I don't know if this is helpful, but for me it was, so I'll pass it on to you. There are a number of what we call the I am statements that God makes throughout the Old Testament. Profound revelations where he zeroes in on particular parts of his attributes and his nature and says, if you want this in a package, you can really begin to digest. Here it is, boom. Jesus, when he came, made a number of I am statements, word pictures for us that helped encapsulate and give us a better imagery of who he is. Well, here we might say Paul makes a number of statements. Now, they're not I am statements because Paul is expressing these. I would say they're he is statements. So verse 15 and verse 18 both begin with that uh, subject verb opening, but it's the idea of here are some tightly woven, profoundly deep revelations. But it's not just a list. Like, here's the first 10 that came to Paul's mind. Now let's go on to talk about something else. Like, these are well thought out, well organized. Uh, Again, very possibly a part of the liturgy of the early church. Um, But Here's several other people, so I'm going to, this is my sales pitch for listening particularly close, and if you missed last week's message, to go back and listen to that uh, to capture some of this. Here's several thoughts from David Garland, first of all. It's the Christological, big word for Christ at the center, Christological high point of the letter. Or later he says, Christology is the theological heart of Colossians, the doctrine, the study of Christ. And like the spokes of a wheel, I love that word picture, all the other themes of the letter radiate from it. And I'll make a case for that uh, a little, in a little bit. Garland again, the prose hymn to Christ in these verses affirms Christ's absolute and universal supremacy and bursts forth like a supernova whose resplendence eclipses everything around it. John MacArthur puts it in the context of the whole Bible. So this is a little longer, but uh, bear with me. It's good. The Bible is supremely the book about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament records the preparation for his coming. The Gospels present him as God in human flesh, come into the world to save sinners. In Acts, the message of salvation in Christ begins to be spread throughout the world. The epistles detail the theology of Christ's work, including Colossians here, and personification of Christ in his body, the church. Finally, Revelation presents Christ on the throne, reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. Every part of Scripture testifies about Jesus Christ. But of all the Bible's teachings about Jesus Christ, none is more significant than these verses. And I would take them through verse 20. Uh, MacArthur ends them at verse 19. I probably shouldn't argue with him. But here's his conclusion. It's vital to a proper understanding of the Christian faith. And then John Piper, with his thoughts on this, 
Here is a litany of amazing truths about Jesus Christ that are probably the most concentrated description of the glories of Jesus in the New Testament. I think we could debate that, but it's a pretty powerful list in that way. And then I appreciated what Piper pushed his congregation or the congregation that he pastored to do. Memorize this litany of glories and ask God to give you affections that correspond to the measure of its greatness. So last week, we noted there's a dozen here. Last week, we looked at six. Jonathan took us through six of those glories. We'll overlap a little bit today, but basically, under the title, Christ Overall, this week, we'll look at the next six under a slightly expanded title, because three-word titles are way too short for me. The Supremacy of Christ in Creation, which really are the verses that we looked at last Sunday in the church, and then where we'll end up today as we gather around the Lord's table in the cross. And I just want to say, uh, as it feels like perhaps we're going back over some of what Jonathan covered last week, why are we repeating, why are you re-preaching it, um, trying not to do that, just trying to unpack more of the, of the richness and the beauty that's here. Chad could get up here next Sunday on this exact same text, and we'd see and hear new glories. Chris the Sunday after that, somebody else the Sunday after that, somebody else the Sunday after that. Like, there is so much that's here. So, even if you were here last week, I'm going to guess that you've forgotten 90%, maybe more. Um, and for me, it would be more. Uh, and maybe you remember better than that, but you haven't thought, given one thought to it the rest of the week. But also, there's a reality that a number of you that are here this morning weren't here last week, and so hopefully it will help bring that full picture for you. And just want to remind you, those of you who are young, whether you think teenagers, 20s, 30s, like, God has blessed you to hear these truths. This is probably not the first time. It might be already in your life the 50th time. But what a grace and what a kindness from him. Don't ever let them become ho-hum. But to those of us who have walked with him and studied these perhaps hundreds of times, let's not let them ever become ho-hum. We will be staggered, staggered. Our knees will be buckled by the glory that we're going to see in our Christ Jesus. Here are words. They are, they're not the same thing as seeing him face to face. But here are realities about him that should give us goosebumps, that should work powerfully inside of us, that should actually even change the way we look at all of life. So Holy Spirit, our prayer now is, as we often sing, please show us Christ. Show us Christ in this portion of your word and increase our knowledge of him even as Paul prayed back in the earlier portion of this chapter. We want to be able to say, as John did when he was face to face with the great Christ, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So please help our hearts now to grasp, to love, to treasure these truths of our dear Savior and Lord. Fill us with Christ, with the gospel, with your truth in profoundly life-transforming ways, I pray. In his name, amen.
So, a couple English teachers things here. Here's one of them as outline. I just want to keep in our minds some of this. And again, I borrowed this outline from John MacArthur as he laid out the whole book. So we're in the first of three sections where Christ's preeminence is being declared. And we have walked through how the gospel worked within Colossae. We've walked through how Christ is preeminent in our redemption in verses 12 to 14, how he's preeminent last week in creation, verses 15 to 17. And Jonathan dipped to toes, our toes a little bit into verse 18 so we could get to that uh, last declaration. But here's where we'll pick it up today, his preeminence in the church, or we could say in his new creation, or we could say in the reconciliation, if you want to have redemption and reconciliation together. A number of things here just to hold up very quickly that I hope will just help you see more of the richness of this. Basically, there's two halves. They happen to actually even divide out six qualities in each of them. Each of those sentences, 15 and 18, begin with, he is, and then it takes on different traits or characteristics. Verses 15 to 17 are Christ's supremacy in creation. Verses 18 to 20 are Christ's supremacy in his new creation. Or we can say 15 to 17, show how he is critical to all of the universe, all of humanity, all of the existence of everything. And verses 18 to 20 show how he is critical to all of the aspects of the new humanity that he is creating in the church and in his followers. Here's another way you can think of these verses. It's a bridge between verse 14 and verse 20 and 21. And what I mean by that is, back in verse 14, we see the redemption, and in verse 21, we see the reconciliation. Two massive, mighty, miraculous things that Christ does. And in between, we see the greatness of the one who accomplishes both redemption and reconciliation. Here's another way you can think about this section. It's a preview to what's coming in chapter 2. Now, chapter 2 is weeks away, so we'll have to remind ourselves when we get there. But let me just show you now. I think it's cool, but maybe it's just English teachers or English lovers. 116, chapter 1, verse 16, talks about rulers and authorities. If you turn the page over to chapter 2, verse 20, you'll see that exact same phrase, rulers and authorities. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, talks about Christ as the head of the body. If you leave over to chapter 2, verse 19, you'll see Christ as the head of the body or the church. Chapter 1, verse 19, talks about the fullness of God. So does chapter 2, verse 9. And chapter 1, verse 20, talks about the cross. And so does chapter 2, verse 15. So part of what Paul's doing here, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is laying down a foundation of truth. And then in chapter 2, he's going to show how each lie, each deception, each wrong teaching about Jesus is countered by these truths that he's already laid out in chapter 1. It's pretty cool. If you can write like that, do it. Finally, and this is getting really English teacher geeky because it talks about prepositional phrases, and for some of you, that alone is brings the shivers. So you don't remember what it is, and that's okay. I just want you to note them, and they are profound. Here's what Sam Storm said. 
The more I meditate on the prepositions, the more I see the beauty and majesty of Jesus. So I tried to highlight them here, and I, I noticed after I did it, I missed a couple. Uh, so find them if that's what you like doing. But by is a preposition in here, by Christ. In other words, he's the source, he's the cause, through Christ. In other words, he's the means, the power. He is the beginning all the way to the end. He is the one who begins it, carries it through, and completes it. In him, meaning nothing happens apart from him, all within the universe, all within the church. And then for him, and in him and for him are ones that are uh, repeated or in and through him, are repeated through here as well. And here I'll lean on David Garland to capture this thought. Whatever is, is that he might be glorified and enjoyed forever. He is the reason, the goal, the aim, the intent, the point, the purpose, the end, the terminus, the consummation and culmination of every molecule that moves. And then he added something, and I don't know if he added this for cultural reasons. I think this is years older, his commentary, but boy does this speak to the me-focused culture even within many churches today. God didn't create the world so he could have you, but so you could have him. Huge difference. Yes, he loves us. Yes, he has created us in order to enjoy him. But ultimately, at the very foundation, he did this for his glory, his pleasure, his enjoyment, and not just simply ours. Let's not narrow it down to that. All right, let's begin to drill in to verses 18 to 20. And again, a little bit of this overlapping from last week, but so critical for us as a church. Here's the declaration that he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church, speaking both universally as well as locally. The church in general, every believer of all time and all of history, and the local church within each particular geographic location. This is capturing and expressing his authority over the church positionally, the fact that he is controlling it, and even deeper, that he is its very life. That if the church or those who profess his name become disconnected, separated from him, we will die. Everything's been formed within him. All of life for the church comes from him. We draw our breath, our strength, our wisdom, our life. All of the other traits come from Christ, not from other means. I love how it's portrayed in chapter two. You've heard this verse many times, especially on Covenant Renewal Sundays, because I think it's such a great capturing. Now, it's worded in the negative in chapter two. You'll see a not at the beginning of the verse. But the point there is, you're not doing this, church. Here's what you should be doing. Holding fast to, and there's that expression again, the head. Um, this is what we each must do individually. This is what we must do as a whole body, because when we're all doing it together, clasping each other, clasping Christ, we are being nourished and we're being knit together through all of our joints and ligaments, and that is when we're growing or maturing with a growth that truly is from God. So quick point, in the same way that all of creation is dependent upon Christ for its very existence and everything that it's doing, even the breath of every one right now who is cursing God in any way. So the church is completely dependent, 
not only for our physical existence as the rest of the universe is, but for even more significantly and eternally our spiritual life and existence. Verse goes on, uh, verse 18, to say Christ is the beginning. Don't think this one probably needs a lot of explanation. It's simply saying he's the one who originated the church. The church didn't grow out of man's ideas, didn't come from the apostles alone. It actually was Jesus came, laid the foundation about the kingdom of God, and then appointed the apostles to be the foundation for the church and promised that he would go with them with tremendous authority to establish the beginning of the church, and he did that. He is the church's originator, the initiator, the source, the founder. Now, from this point on in the hymn, even though we're in the middle of a verse, it seems to begin to weave in the humanity of Christ for the first time because it references the dead here. So added to all the magnificence before this is now Christ, this great one, this creator, originator, sustainer of all things has become a human being like us. But Paul doesn't start with his birth birth. He actually starts with a creative way of saying the resurrection, birth or firstborn from the dead, a way of speaking of a unique life that's going to be very, very different from the very frail, fragile life that we all are living now. He's not the first to be raised from the dead, but he's firstborn, if you remember, highest, number one ranking, most significant, preeminent, because he's the only one to have been raised from the dead, never to die again. And he now is our guarantee to the whole church, you too will experience what I have experienced one day when I come again, because I've conquered death, I've disarmed everything, I am prepared when I come to raise you from the dead and you will join me as the firstborn and we will all live eternally. We won't be resurrected because of our power or our will. We won't be resurrected because somebody else calls us up from the grave. There is one means by which any dead being can come to life and it is Christ, the one who created out of nothing. 1 Corinthians 15, I won't even take the time to specifically read this, but you can see in there, first fruits, Paul is using the language in that letter, slightly different, but the same idea here of harvest, the very first, the finest, the best, and Christ is the first of that, and he will ultimately destroy the last enemy. So, where Jonathan took us to last week was all of the details of verses 15 to 18 point toward this culminating purpose or reason that in everything, in every manner possible, in every realm, in every person, in every part of creation, Christ might be preeminent, supreme, number one, overall, vastly superior. Two people's thoughts on this. First of all, John Piper's, all that came into being exists for Christ. That is, exists to display the greatness of Christ. Nothing, nothing in the universe exists for its own sake. Everything from the bottom of the oceans to the top of the mountains, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, from the most boring school subject to the most fascinating science, from the ugliest cockroach to the most beautiful human, from the greatest saint to the most wicked genocidal dictator, 
everything that exists, exists to make the greatness of Christ more fully known, including you. And then from David Garland, don't think of Jesus as merely bearing up the world as if he were Atlas, holding aloft the globe on somewhat sunken shoulders, laboring intensely lest he cater, crater under its incredible weight. No, the Lord Jesus is bearing the universe toward a consummation. He is moving and managing and orchestrating all that he sustains so that on the final day, his glory will be radiantly seen and his purpose will have been perfectly attained. One pause before we dive into verses 19 to 20 here. Have you noticed that not once in this section of the greatness of Christ has love been mentioned? Not once has grace been mentioned. Not once has mercy been mentioned. In other words, his glory is staggering without those. But we also know they are a huge part of who he is. So add those in in your mind and the radiance is even more magnified and splendid. What a Christ he is. What an incredible privilege we have been given to know him, this Christ. He is so deserving of our adoration, so deserving of all of our devotion. And if Christ is declared preeminent in all these ways here in this section of Colossians, he must be preeminent in every matter of our lives as well. He should be preeminent in our hearts, our affections, our desires. He should be preeminent in our thoughts, the thing that weighs most heavily and beautifully on everything that we think about every day and all the rest of our lives. He can't be merely pretty important or prominent, or in a lot better place than I used to have him. There's one place for Jesus Christ, top, number one, preeminent, second, not even close, whatever that might be in your life. That's part of the point is see the majesty and don't you dare put anything up as a competition against that. I think that's what's part of Paul's prayer and point and desire in Philippians 1. Familiar passage to us, but think of it in light of the preeminence of Christ. Because Christ is so preeminent to Paul, he says as he's sitting in a prison cell, possibly facing death, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not, no matter what happens to me, if they chop my head off or if they let me go free, that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored. And I would emphasize his preeminence would be put forth, would be shown, would be displayed in my body. Whether that body lives on or whether that body meets its death. For to me, Paul says in these well-known four words, to live is Christ. To have life at all is all because of Christ, and he is at the center of it all. Okay, more glorious truths. I, if I were writing this, would have kept that, that he might be preeminent in everything until the end of verse 20. But God put it at the end of verse 18. Not going to argue with that. 
But I want to say that there are more glories coming. There's even more reasons why he should be preeminent in our lives. And God is going to unpack some of that. And now what begins to happen is that God in this account is narrowing down to specifically the way that Christ made a way of salvation available to us when there was no other hope, no other way that we would ever attain. Now, it doesn't say it here in Colossians. We have to know the rest of the Bible story to know that since Genesis 3, sin has taken all of creation, all of creation, everything that was created so perfectly good and God pronounced good in Genesis 1, gone awry and haywired and uh, disheveled and disordered after that because of sin. Romans 8, Paul describes creation as subjected to futility, in bondage to corruption. The whole creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. Like those are the word pictures we're given for this creation that the creator. So what's remarkable, beginning in verse 19, is that this majestic, marvelous, preeminent Christ did this, took on a human body. Again, not specifically mentioned here. We know it already from his firstborn from the dead. But here, I think that's the press or the point of this because Verse 19 looks very much like verse 15 at the beginning. Both of them are talking about being the image, the fullness of God in every way. And so here, I think it's pressing on the fact that the fullness of God continued dwelling in Christ as he became Jesus of Nazareth here on earth. And we'll uh, see that even more in chapter 2. The verse is up there. In chapter 2, almost this exact same Line is used in him, the whole fullness of deity, and now you'll see dwells bodily. So both of them have that idea of dwelling, residing, permanently being a part of him. There's just the point here that he did not set his divinity or deity aside. He remained fully God. God was dwelling fully in him, on him. Uh, Sam Storms just simply says, He's everything the Father is, even as Jesus of Nazareth, except for being the Father. John the Apostle said, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, has, that's Jesus, has made him known. Jesus himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So J.B. Lightfoot, he is not only the chief manifestation of the divine nature, he exhausts the Godhead completely manifested. In him resides the totality of the divine powers and attributes. None of it is coming and going. All of it rests permanently with him. He does not lay that aside ever or stop being God. And I think one of the easiest evidences for us is that there are scriptures that tell us he raised himself from the dead. All of that emphasized here to simply say, don't make this incredible preeminent Christ shrunk down and be less than he is when he's Jesus of Nazareth. And that now brings us to what we pointed out earlier, the second R word that I think is really significant and beautiful here. Back in verse 14 of chapter 1, the R word redemption. And there are other great R words, right? Ransom, rescue, regeneration. But here is redemption in 14 and now in 
19 or 20, uh, the reconciliation, and that will be unpacked even next Sunday a little bit further. Um, but here is the emphasize that through him, he came to reconcile to himself all things. The one who created all came and began to do a work that would begin to undo the curse and to ultimately make it so that we could be reconciled to him. Most specifically, so that we sinners separated from God eternally by our sin would have a way by faith in the Son and by what he has done to be made right with God, to move from being the enemy of God to being the friend of God, to move from being adversarial in position with God to having the closest intimate kind of relationship one can possibly have with God. Staggering in its truth. Paul unpacked this more in 2 Corinthians 5. Again, I'm not going to read it all, but you can see, and there's even more references to reconciliation because in here is also woven uh, being ministers of reconciliation. But over and over and over in the, in the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter, Paul reiterated over and over and over this reconciling work of God. And notice in the fourth or fifth line down, not only that our sins are not counted against us, but down to the last lines, that we are incredibly, by grace, given, made to become the very righteousness of God himself. Mind-blowing. But ultimately, when Christ returns, he is restoring, reconciling peace to everyone who is a part of his church. So all things here, it isn't necessarily all of creation coming to recognize that and being right with God. We're not all saved. But within the church, all things, and within the greater creation of all that he has done, that parts of creation that suffer under the curse, that, that, aren't, that haven't committed sin, are all reconciled and made right. Garland, the death of an obscure Jew on a seemingly God-forsaken hillock in a backwater of the Roman Empire attracted no notice from the historians of the era, but it was the event that reconciles heaven and earth. The only way sinners could possibly be made right with God and reconciled to God because of their sin required that God himself, namely God the Son, would do the utterly impossible thing that no one else could do in order to reconcile us to God. We might say as we go into verse, uh, the end of verse 20 that the most preeminent aspect of his reconciliation work actually came when he was the lowest. As the sermon title emphasizes, the third utter preeminence of God is displayed in the cross. And in just a few moments, we'll gather around the Lord's table to remember that. Garland says here, the poem's second strophe, or the stanza, the ending thought, brings the cosmic Christ down to earth where blood, his blood, flows from a body strung up on a cross. Kent Hughes, the cross is the ultimate evidence that there is no length the love of God will refuse to go in effecting or bringing about, accomplishing reconciliation. And our closing thought today, and we could spend weeks on just this concept of peace given us through the blood of the cross. And you'll see if you glance your eyes to verse 22, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing, 
you'll see the reconciling, the body, and the death of Christ. Another way of saying it, emphasizing over and over, this gory, gruesome cross is also a glory-filled cross because of whose blood is spilt on it. Romans 5 is just one place we can go for this peace and reconciliation. Paul captured it well here early in this great epistle. He starts in chapter 5, verse 1 with, since we have been justified by faith, we have, here it is, peace with God. Now how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a prepositional phrase again. Verse 6, familiar one to us. While we were still weak, while we were powerless to ever get back to God by our own efforts, at the right time, in God's perfect timing, the majestic, preeminent, glorious, supreme Christ died for the ungodly. Verses 8 to 11, God shows his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, same language as Colossians, much more now shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, that's all Colossians language as well, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Do you personally know this Christ? Do you know this reconciliation? Are you experiencing it? Not just in some wishful way of finding your own way to God, but through Christ, through the Son, through the bloody cross. Do you have a genuine peace? A peace so strong that in Colossians 3.15, Paul will command, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Do you have that kind of peace? Kent Hughes simply says, reconciliation to God is an explicitly one-sided process. He does virtually everything. All he calls us to do is respond and respond in faith and repentance. So have you responded to God's offer, the staggering offer of this supreme Christ, his blood shed on the cross, rising from the dead, the firstborn from the dead, so that you could be reconciled to God and know peace forever. I just want to urge you, if you've never done so, to believe, to put your whole trust in him now and to turn from your sin in order to follow him in faith and find that reconciliation and peace that we have found and love. Closing thought to this whole section and then let's transition to the Lord's table. Love this from Shirley Guthrie. He, Christ, is not like a king who preserves his majesty and honor only by shutting himself up in the splendor of his palace, safely isolated from the misery of the poor peasants and the threat of his enemies outside the fortress. His majesty is the majesty of a love so great that he leaves the palace to live among his subjects as one of them, sharing their condition even at the risk of vulnerability to the attack of his enemies. And that's what we see as Satan, Judas, and the religious leaders all turn their hatred on him and nail him to the cross, which is how God accomplished the perfect uh, carrying out of his plan for reconciliation. And Guthrie finishes with, if we want to find this king, we will find him among the weak and lowly, his genuine majesty revealed and hidden. 
And I would add, we will also find him seated at a table, inviting us to come and eat with him, his, his body and his blood as our life. Just a couple of thoughts from Colossians, um, just pulling out that I hope are helpful for your meditation at the Lord's table. First of all, the letter has brought us to the very heart of the gospel. Verse 20 highlights Christ's blood. Verse 22, which we'll get to next week, highlights Christ's body. And now as we gather at the table, we drink a cup symbolizing his blood, and we eat bread symbolizing his body. Secondly, the idea of forgiveness of sins, which is so central as we partake of communion, being tied directly to redemption is in chapter 1, verse 14. And then we read earlier from 2 Corinthians 5, 19, that in Christ, in, it's also tied directly to reconciliation. In other words, the forgiveness of sins is a central, powerful part of both our redemption and our reconciliation, two ways that our salvation is described where we are made right with God. And then third, the extraordinary Christ of verses 15 through 20, who has given extraordinarily to us and who has given his majestic self extraordinarily for us, is now nourishing our souls with the most ordinary of elements, a piece of bread and a sip of juice. And through that, he will do an incredible, extraordinary work in our hearts. Love this way that Henry Mull put it. When you take the bread and wine, what shall you think? What shall you believe? That simple bread, that small draft of wine, speaks straight from him to you. They are like the sound of his voice saying, all is true, all is yours. It is no dream that I died for you and that you are saved by me any more than you're eating and drinking right now is a dream. And secondly, they are like the very grasp of his hand taking hold of your hand. We are one, says Jesus, poor believing sinner. I have joined you. I have clasped you to myself. As surely as you touch and taste that bread and wine, so surely you who believe in me are one with me. Father, as we gather now, we thank you for the invitation to come and eat with you. And we thank you for this representation and this reminder of your body and your blood that have been given so spectacularly and so awfully for our sin. Would you now work mightily through these moments as we commune with you privately in our hearts, but then together eating the bread and the cup to nourish us in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in his name and for his glory. Amen.